My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. And welcome to Talking Radical Radio, where we bring you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give you the chance to hear many different people who are facing many different struggles talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening is a crucial step in strengthening all of our efforts to change the world. On this week's show, I'll be speaking with Sidra Ahmed Chan and Nia Abdullahi. The list of high-profile manifestations of Islamophobia in Canada is long and serious, even just in recent years. There was the massacre of Muslim worshippers at the Islamic Cultural Centre in Quebec City on January 29, 2017, by a white man with far-right politics. In that same year, there was the aggressive wave of Islamophobic organizing by the grassroots far-right and within the Conservative Party in response to a non-binding parliamentary motion condemning Islamophobia. And then there's Law 21 in Quebec, which bans public sector workers from wearing religious symbols and recipients of certain public services from covering their faces, in a move that in practice targets Muslim women. And all of that is without getting into the ways in which over the last three decades, the Canadian state has participated in military action against multiple Muslim-majority countries and has surveilled, targeted, and harassed Muslim communities in Canada. All of that, however, is just the most publicly visible tip of the proverbial iceberg. From microaggressions to discrimination to verbal abuse to harassment and assault, Muslims in Canada are subjected to all manner of everyday harms and indignities that seldom get mainstream attention. Muslims are, of course, as diverse as any other large group of people, and experiences of everyday Islamophobia vary a great deal according to the other oppressions that intersect in their experience. Black Muslims experience Islamophobia bound together with anti-black racism, Muslim women experience gendered Islamophobia, and so on. Sidra Ahmed Chan is one of the founding members of an organization called Rivers of Hope, which got its start with research that she was doing as part of her MA at the University of Toronto. She interviewed Muslim women from the Greater Toronto Area to build a qualitative picture of the kinds of gendered Islamophobia that they face and the ways that it impacts their lives. She's no stranger to facing Islamophobia herself, but still, she heard some things that surprised her. Ahmed Chan decided that she couldn't just type up her findings and leave it at that. She had to use them to inform action, to give back to her community. Initially, with the help of artist Aza Abaro, she turned her findings into the Rivers of Hope Toolkit in 2018, and distributed it online and in community contexts. From there, she and two other women founded Rivers of Hope as a collective. They got some funding to create a workshop for high schools called Challenging Islamophobia Through Education and the Arts. Part of that process was recruiting facilitators to deliver the workshop, and it was at this point that Abdullahi joined the group. The workshop talks about the basics of Islamophobia, what it is, how it happens, and so on, and is also very focused on solutions, encouraging participants to reflect on their own actions and attitudes, but also helping build skills for people to intervene when they witness an Islamophobic incident in public. A particularly popular part of the workshop is its use of the theater of the oppressed model, where people act out a skit in which an incident occurs, and audience members can volunteer to join the skit as a bystander and act out how they might intervene. So far, they have delivered the workshop in more than 20 schools, a few post-secondary institutions, as well as in various community contexts, and to teachers in professional development contexts. 
In the coming years, they plan to significantly increase their outreach and their delivery of the workshop across the Greater Toronto Area and beyond, and they also hope to develop more workshops dealing with specific aspects of Islamophobia. Though they are currently working against Islamophobia in an educational mode, they recognize the need for systemic change. In particular, they understand Islamophobia as intimately linked to the many other forms of systemic oppression that shape life in Canada. For that reason, the struggles against them must be linked as well. They argue that addressing Islamophobia in Canada must look like committing to decolonization, it must look like working to defund the police, it must look like questioning how borders divide us, it must look like taking a critical stance towards mainstream Canadian multicultural nationalism, and much, much more. I speak with Ahmed Chan and Abdullahi about Islamophobia in Canada and about Rivers of Hope. And just a bit of a content warning that early on in the interview, we do talk about some of the forms that Islamophobic microaggressions, harassment, and violence, including sexual violence, can take. My name is Sidra Ahmed Chan. I am one of the founding members of Rivers of Hope, and my work involves raising awareness and writing and researching about two issues that are really close to my heart. One is Islamophobia, and the other is gendered violence. The work of Rivers of Hope at least how it started, came out of thinking about those two topics together. How does Islamophobia affect Muslim women? And what kind of violence are Muslim women exposed to because of gendered Islamophobia? So the intersection of those two identities. So that's my passion. I've written about it, done research on it, and now I'm very privileged to be part of Rivers of Hope, where we work on community-based education to raise awareness about Islamophobia and other intersecting oppressions and give people tools to be active bystanders if they witness Islamophobic violence of any kind, but also educating people to prevent these things from happening to begin with. My name is Nia Abdullahi, and I am currently the Director of Outreach for Rivers of Hope. I wear different hats, but I am a student currently in university. When I heard about the work that Sidra was doing, I was really inspired and touched by it because Islamophobia affects my life in many different ways. And especially to see that they were able to bring in the intersectionalities of the Muslim identity and what that means and how Islam can look different for different people. As a Black Muslim, I experienced that on the daily because there's like anti-Black racism within the Muslim community or like within Muslim spaces as well and within society, right? It's just further marginalization, right? So that's kind of how I got into it. And I'm really happy to be on board. For me, my personal trajectory getting here has been, I guess, a lifelong journey. I definitely have lived experience with Islamophobia and other forms of discrimination, basically from kindergarten, you know, was the first time I experienced racism. And I started wearing hijab in grade six. And this was back in the early 90s in Toronto. At that time, I was the only girl in the school wearing hijab. And, you know, just different experiences throughout my life. Looking back, I didn't really have language to describe that this is Islamophobia, this is gendered Islamophobia, like I knew, but I was just kind of like living it like a fish in water. And in terms of the work that I'm doing now as an adult, it's kind of one thing led to another, but I know one incident that really impacted me, it was before the Quebec mosque massacre happened. There was a hate crime in Toronto, and basically a Muslim mother was at an elementary school to pick up her children, and she was attacked by two white supremacists and physically assaulted. There was something about that incident that just, it was a really scary time. I believe it was around 2016, 2017. So all of the Trump stuff was happening. You just felt like there's this shift in the air. Racism and Islamophobia have always been around, but I just felt like something was really shifting. 
So from there, I was in grad school at the time and I thought, okay, you know what, let me shift to do a research project on Islamophobic violence against Muslim women. Because I know even from my own life, there are so many stories that are never documented, never told. So it was really those sort of feelings that led to me being involved in this kind of work. What drew me to Rivers of Hope for me as well, it was kind of like just my experiences growing up. Islamophobia, I've seen my mom face it, but like growing up, I didn't wear hijab. I just started wearing hijab, the head veil, just two years ago. So I didn't really experience that much. It was more so anti Black racism. And when people would find out that I was Muslim because I wasn't visibly Muslim, that would be the time where people would question my Islam and they'd be like, oh, you don't look Muslim. And when I started wearing hijab, and that was my own choice, and it was just like a spiritual thing for me when I started to wear it. But when I started to wear it, I definitely saw the shift in the way people treated me in society, strangers, friends, colleagues at work. And honestly, it broke my heart because like, I'm still Mia. When I look back and when I see the work that Rivers of Hope is doing and even the materials that we use, I never thought of the stuff that I experienced when I was younger to be Islamophobia. But even young children that don't wear hijab experience it too. Like I remember being teased by kids in my class. I remember a young boy and honestly, he doesn't know better. He's just a kid. Maybe we were seven or eight, but we were having snack at our daycare and he put a brown paper towel on his head and he was like kind of mocking my mom. And he was like, oh, look, I'm Nia's mom. The fact that I still remember that till this day it really shows that it has an effect on people, which is the reason why it's so important that we are doing this work, especially to students in schools. So, Sidra, your research that was the starting point for Rivers of Hope, what did it involve and what were some of your key findings? It was back in 2017 that I did a call out for participants in my research project at U of T. The call-out was for if you're a Muslim woman who has experienced Islamophobic violence of any kind. I conducted interviews with the people who reached out to me. I ended up speaking with 21 Muslim women in the greater Toronto area. And to be honest, I went into the research project with a preconceived idea of the kinds of stories that I would hear. And this research project really shocked me to my core. I was told about an incident of attempted murder in the street, a very scary incident that happened to a Muslim woman who after that was too terrified to be outside with hijab. She was attacked in the street and while the person was yelling racial and Islamophobic slurs at her and the person grabbed her hijab, these sorts of things. And after that incident, she was not able to wear hijab in public. She was so traumatized that she said that if she went outside with hijab after that incident, she was constantly scanning her environment, you know, looking for threats. That's traumatic stress, right? And that's one big thing that came out of the research interviews for me, just seeing that it's not only about these incidents that happen, it's the aftermath that people are carrying. And there's so few spaces for Muslims in general and Muslim women to talk about these things and process them. Another shocking thing from the research for me was that Islamophobic violence can sometimes look like sexual assault. I feel like this is an untold story when it comes to Islamophobia, that a lot of the time the perpetrators are men, and a lot of the times the people being targeted are Muslim women. There were two incidents of sexual assault disclosed to me in the research, and one of them happened in a school. And again, the young woman that it happened to, she was a girl at the time it happened, she was so traumatized by that, I hate to even say this, but I think it's important to share she changed her last name because the perpetrator was mockingly saying her last name during the assault. 
I feel it's important to talk about how serious these things are because most of these incidents do not ever make the newspapers. People say Islamophobia doesn't exist. And then on the other hand, you have stories like the ones that I just described to you from my research. Another thing that really shocked me from the interviews was the age of a lot of the women being targeted. A lot of the women who came forward with stories, they're people I would normally see as like aunties. The eldest participant was 58 years old. So just thinking of a 58-year-old woman, you know, at a bus stop being yelled at by strangers, Islamophobic slurs. And that particular woman that I'm thinking of who shared that with me, she is a Black Muslim woman. And it should give everyone pause that half of the people that reached out to me for this research study are Black Muslim women. And the Black Muslim women in the research study spoke about very frequent Islamophobic slurs in the street. So it's like Nia was speaking about that intersection and how it is different for everyone. And Black Muslim women are dealing with anti-Black racism, Islamophobia, and gender-based oppression all at once. You can see why after this research project, I didn't want to just say, okay, let me write that up in a thesis and put it on a shelf in a university. That just felt wrong. So after the research was completed and I submitted my thesis, I worked with this amazing artist named Aza Abaro to create a toolkit. And the purpose of the toolkit was to summarize the research findings, give resources for people who have lived through Islamophobic violence, share some poetry and stories by Muslim women, and just give it as an offering back to the community. You know, research so often, it goes into communities and it just extracts knowledge. And then people use that to publish papers and grow their own careers. And that's very exploitative and wrong. And so the purpose of the toolkit was to share the research back and give a resource back to the communities that fed the project. And then one thing kind of led to the other, because what happened from there is at the launch of the Rivers of Hope toolkit, there was a strong sense, we need this in schools. We need to give out the toolkit in schools and we need workshops in schools. There's a crisis in our schools with Islamophobia, with anti-Black racism, with students who are newcomers facing severe bullying, all of these pieces. Then we formed the Rivers of Hope Collective. That was myself, Aima, and Naima at that time. And we applied for a InSpirit Foundation grant and then got a $10,000 grant. From there, we created a workshop and recruited facilitators to join our team and facilitate the workshop in high school. So that's when Nia came on. What do the workshops involve? The point of the workshop is definitely to get people, especially young high schoolers, an introduction to Islamophobia. But depending on the grade or like the group, we cater specifically to different groups and make workshops for those groups specifically. In the workshop itself, we talk about anti-Black racism. We talk about a lot of different intersectionalities within Islam and like what different people face and gendered Islamophobia. And it's just like giving people an understanding of the words that you use to explain it and also debunking myths and stuff as well. So we go through all of that, just like a great introduction to it and also talking about Islamophobic microaggressions. What I do really love about the workshop is it's titled Challenging Islamophobia Through Education and the Arts. So the workshop in itself is very much solution focused too. We do talk about the problem itself and what the issue is, but then we also have solutions to how we can combat this within our communities and within society and what you as an individual can do on a micro level to improve yourself and to also listen to people and like be open and honest and have those conversations and taking accountability when you've done something wrong too and reflecting back on what you do. 
I do think that people leave the workshops feeling like they learned something that they didn't know about before. And especially when I see the Muslims in the class, some of them come up to me like, thank you so much for taking the time to talk about these things. This happens in my school on the regular. And I'm so happy that you're talking about these things so people can understand what I'm going through. This is just an introduction to it. It's very important for them to also be committed to taking the time to research, look things up, understanding, taking the time to listen. You have to continue working. It's a continuous movement, continuous work that you have to continuously keep doing in order to achieve a better understanding. One of the parts of the workshop that seems to be universally really loved is the popular theater exercise that we do in the workshop. So we have skits that we've created that show an incident of Islamophobia. And it's usually something kind of subtle that might be happening in a classroom setting or in the community. And we act out the skit showing an Islamophobic incident. For the first round, we're just having the audience watch the skit and we ask them to reflect on is there anyone you would like to step up and replace in the skit and show what you would say instead? So how you would intervene or how you would say something supportive or how you would de-escalate the situation or educate the person who's being harmful. It kind of gives a really safe way to practice thinking about Islamophobia, thinking about how you would intervene because it's a skit. It's like a low stakes environment. Because I think a big issue, too, is that when people see things or hear things, that in their gut they know, oh, this is wrong. But they might freeze because they haven't been given space to unpack what they're seeing means and to practice what it looks like to be helpful, to assess the situation. And we usually give people options, too, because not everyone is going to feel or be safe or comfortable in directly intervening if they're witnessing something. But we also share that, hey, you can check in with the person afterwards. You can stand there and be like a witness. There are many different options depending on the scenario. The more of these that we do, the bystander intervention workshops with skits, the more I feel that it's important to not give people a cookie cutter checklist because every situation and scenario is different. I think it's more important to get people to really care and to tune into what's happening and to have that internal feeling that they have a role to play. But different people are policed in different ways, surveilled in different ways. There's different privilege that people hold. And so depending on where you are in terms of your social location, bystander intervention might look different for you. So we can't tell them, hey, here's exactly what you have to say and what you have to do if you see something. For them, it might look different. It might look like checking in with the person afterwards, providing a phone number they could call, saying, I'm sorry that happened to you. Going back to the research part, there were a few of the women that I spoke to who were affected by the incident of Islamophobic violence that happened in a public space. But what was kind of an additional trauma and feeling heartbroken, and I'm basically almost quoting here one of the participants and saying, they felt like nobody cared. So part of a bystander intervention, like not to negate actually interfering with the harm that's happening, but even just to check in afterwards and show that you care that this thing happened, that you witness, you're here to support, that means something too. So we try to give that whole variety of opportunities that everyone has something to offer in terms of intervention. And also, I guess one principle we do try to share is to always de-escalate and focus on ensuring safety of the person. You know, you don't want to turn an incident into a situation where your own anger or your emotions are taking over and maybe fueling the fire rather than doing everything you can to ensure the safety of the person being targeted. 
In terms of both the toolkit and the workshop, what's your sense of the reach of the group's work so far? I think we've been to about 20 different schools and community organizations and even a couple of colleges. And we also were invited to give a guest talk at McMaster University once. I think when we counted up the numbers, it was about a thousand people so far. It's mostly been high school students, but we've trained groups of teachers. We did a professional development training with the Toronto District School Board last year. We did two workshops actually in the Regent Park community, which was tailored more for community, not school setting. In terms of the toolkit, about 500 printed copies were distributed at the launch. And since then, you know, I know that it's been downloaded across Canada. And that's the feeling that I've had about Rivers of Hope, that this is something that could become Canada-wide because the need is there. It's universal. Actually, people in the United States have also downloaded the toolkit. And I think that speaks to the fact that, again, there aren't many resources that are specifically addressing how to support people who have been through Islamophobic violence then that's something that I think we're really passionate about continuing to improve those resources. So that's been the impact so far. Rivers of Hope obviously addresses Islamophobia in all of its intersections in a kind of educational mode. So recognizing that it's a bit beyond your group's mandate, what's your sense of the kinds of larger systemic changes that are also important to addressing Islamophobia in Canada? That's a really huge question, but I think one of the really important pieces to address Islamophobia in the Canadian context is to see how it's linked to other systemic oppressions that have been in the country since it was formed. Rivers of Hope had a really great training just last week on the links between Islamophobia and settler colonialism and how stigmatization of Muslims as quote-unquote terrorists it feels new and it feels unique to Muslims, but in many ways, the facilitator who was training us said it mirrors how Indigenous peoples have been stigmatized by the Canadian state. So I think one really big goal for us as we're revising the workshop and continuing to talk about Islamophobia is to talk about how it connects to these other forms of oppression in Canada, like including settler colonialism, anti-Black racism, which is absolutely rooted in this country. Because I think sometimes siloing Islamophobia as you know something that just appeared after 9-11 and is like a unique thing that Muslims face, but it's not connected to anything else. I think that's actually been hurting us more than helping us because the truth is it's part of interconnected systems of oppression. Addressing Islamophobia in Canada, using that perspective, it looks like committing to decolonization, right? Like understanding the links between colonialism, Islamophobia. It looks like, you know, defunding police, understanding the links between anti-Black racism and Islamophobia and the surveillance that Black Muslims in Canada are put through. So I think that's a very promising direction for advocacy work to look like linking arms with these interlocking resistances. That's what I think the future of bringing about change will look like. Because you can't talk about, for example, surveillance of Muslim communities in Canada by CSIS without talking about police brutality against Black communities in Canada, right? You can't talk about Bill 21 and Muslim women being targeted for their visible religious expression without noting that Indigenous communities in Canada have had their spiritual expressions legally banned for many, many, many years and as part of how this country was founded, right? 
So the more we kind of dig and see the links, the more it becomes clear that you know, that's why I think the title of this radio show is so cool, like talking radical, like what does radical resistance to Islamophobia look like? It looks like talking about these connections. And one thing that I personally, and I think I speak for Rivers of Hope in saying this, that one way we don't believe in challenging Islamophobia is just about, you know, kind of using that multicultural approach, you know, just wave the Canadian flag, Muslims belong in Canada too. Yes, it's important to embrace that feeling of belonging because we are so often told, go back to where you came from and excluded. That's not right. But we also need to be critical of whose land is this? Whose land are we on? If we're non-Indigenous Muslims, we're on stolen land. So yeah, those are some of the ways that we can think about addressing Islamophobia in a way that's talking about collective struggles. Another piece too is Muslims are often seen as foreign, right? Like go back to where you came from. And this idea of who is a Canadian and what does a Canadian look like and who belongs and who doesn't, it's very much drawn on lines of race. So again, thinking about resisting Islamophobia, we have to think about our borders and how we police who is allowed to be a citizen, who is not. We know right now we have a crisis of migrant farm workers in Canada having outbreaks of COVID-19, and they're being asked to continue to work even if they are infected with COVID-19. How do you get a program like that in Canada? By drawing lines of who gets to be a citizen and who just gets to come here and work on a temporary visa and leave. So all of these connections are there, right? And so that's what we're visioning when we're thinking about dismantling Islamophobia. Yes, it's important to have things like Motion M103 and different kind of governments making statements against Islamophobia, getting rid of Law 21. Those changes are important, but I think the grassroots movements are going to be where we'll see real change and seeing how these struggles are interconnected. The way that you stated that was beautiful and perfect. I'm really happy that you talked about just how this land isn't ours to begin with and everything about Islamophobia and how it intertwines with the struggles of all of us collectively and what that means. Like as Muslims, we must be in solidarity with Indigenous people in Canada and always working towards taking action for justice. It's something that we have to continuously work on. I really appreciated the way you said just waving the Canadian flag and just like, oh, we're all kumbaya. We're here in Canada. Yay. Hooray. It's not like that. There's so much oppression. There's so much systemic issues within this country, police brutality. There's so many things. And Rivers of Hope isn't just here to say, okay, Islamophobia is its own entity. And like, we're just here to combat that. No, it's about all of the issues altogether. What's coming up for Rivers of Hope in the next while? There's a lot of different things that Rivers of Hope has in store for the next few years, hopefully. We will be doing a lot more outreach. We're actually going to be hiring more facilitators. So just like growing overall, doing more workshops within different schools and just letting people know about what's happening in society. And we're hoping to create online versions of our workshop as well with social distancing, but also to be able to reach more people and have kind of like a 1.0, 2.0 version of the workshop, different modules that go into specific topics, like the topics we've been talking about today, more in depth. And yeah, that's what we're hoping to do. You have been listening to my interview with Sidra Ahmed Chan and Nia Abdullahi of Rivers of Hope. You can learn more about the group at riversofhopeproject.com. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link for the radio show. 
On the site, you can sign up for email updates or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, iTunes, SoundCloud, and other platforms. I'm Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Hamilton, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, published by Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week. <laughs>